chapter 10, and by the Spirit, the word of our Lord. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments, Jesus said. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. The man said to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all of these commandments from my youth. And then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the man heard this, he went, excuse me, when he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the, the disciples were perplexed at these words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals, it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thank be to God. God. Okay, I want to begin just with a little sound check. Are you hearing me? The, the mic is working. Okay, I apologize. There was a battery issue, which means there was... Oh, I'm getting a negative. My, my mic is on. So it's just not picking up. I'm going to use the pulpit mic. Hello, everyone. Can you hear me? All right, there we go. You're going to wish you didn't hear in a minute, but that's okay. <laughs> All right, so let's have a do-over. If you couldn't hear the passage being read, you got a flavor of it in the children's sermon as well. You will hear it again a bit in the sermon itself, so worry not. Uh, but you always do have your pew Bibles and your Bibles at home to go back and read Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 17. Let us have a word of prayer. Lord, amplify not my words, but the message you would embed in them. Amplify in our hearts not just what we feel, but what you desire. 
such that the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So in addition to all the things going on, the events in the church, what we've been going through as a congregation in these months, this has been a season of remembrance. In the last few months, we have given thanks for nine lives that bore witness to the love and the life of God in Jesus. These lives include a man named Graham Cosmas, whose diligent study of military history exhibited the sacred traits of attentiveness and care. They include Don Smiles, a man who brought exuberance and compassion into every circle of his life. They included Randy Walkup, brother of Pam, lover of car engines and his family even more. Connie Ring, whose public service and private life bore witness to the life of God's elect. Nancy McKeever, who loved the kids, who sewed heart-shaped pillows for the sick, who decorated our spaces with color and life. Mary Del Kemp, a ringer, a salt-of-the-earth woman who had deep musical devotion. Sarah Schramm, who was the granddaughter of Minnie Howard and who left her own mark with her disarming silliness and speech. Tom Paulson, whose life of service on the seas found its foundation in our eternal father, strong to save. And lastly, yesterday, we celebrated and remembered Bob Calhoun, a student of history, a teacher of bipartisanship, a leader of minds and of men. None of these women and men were perfect, but oh, how God's perfection shone through them and shineth still in resurrection glory. And to this pantheon of nine who were great in God, I want today to add to our memory and honor a tenth, the rich man of Mark chapter 10. Many scholars and sermons disparage this man. They treat him as a lost cause who cared more about the fancy sandals on his wealthy feet than the barefoot poor trotting in his midst. Indeed, far from a perfect ten, this tenth man, with all his flaws, was also this. He was someone whom Jesus loved. And that love, more than anything else, defines who he was and who he is as a citizen of the commonwealth of heaven, whose citizenship he so earnestly sought. 
in the frame of this love of Jesus for this man. The rich man of Mark chapter 10 merits our remembrance and tribute. For in him we see a measure of ourselves, and more deeply we see a measure of our hope in God, for whom all things are possible. So today I want to continue this season of remembrance and give this tenth man a proper eulogy. Now when doing a eulogy, you don't need the whole biography of a person's life to convey that person's essence. There are usually singular moments, episodes, or traits that tell the larger story. And so it is with the rich man of Mark 10. From this short passage, we can learn a great deal. For instance, number one, we know that this man was a runner. We have some runners in our midst. This man was a runner, but not only a runner, he was a runner in pursuit of the greatest prize. When Jesus was passing through town, this unnamed man of Mark 10 galloped like a thoroughbred to meet Jesus. Yes, he was like a horse with no name. We don't know who he was, but we know what he wanted. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? According to the wisdom of the hockey legend Wayne Gretzky, you do miss 100% of the shots that you do not take. Similarly, I will paraphrase one archer's wisdom to another archer in the latest Marvel Comic Universe movie. Raise your hand if you've seen it so I know how many people will get this reference. One of you. Man, I picked some, I picked some good references. Okay, but I think you'll still get this. He said to the other archer, he said, if you aim at nothing, you will hit nothing. Whatever you want to say about the man of Mark 10, you can say that he took his shot. He aimed at something worthy of his sweat and perspiration. My favorite comedy routine of Jerry Seinfeld is the one where he references a study that found that speaking in front of a crowd was the number one fear of the average person. Number two was death. <laughs> and here I'm tempted to go into kind of a Seinfeld tone and say, this means, no, nah, it's not good. Never mind. I'll just do it in my voice. This means, he said, that for the average person, if you were forced to be at a funeral, you would rather be in the casket than doing the eulogy. So the average person in Seinfeld's comedy routine misprioritizes his or her fears. In contrast, Mark's man rightly steers his desires to matters of ultimate concern. What must I do to inherit eternal life? We might reflect good people of the church how earnestly are we asking the same question? How devoutly are we asking it for ourselves? And more importantly, how urgently are we asking it for others? 
How diligently do we structure our lives, align our values, temper our fears, or choose the fears we follow to seek this eternal end? Jacob brought up the motto of Reformed faith, that we are saved by grace through faith. In other words, our, save, our salvation is a gift from God, not one that we earn. And this is true. But our emphasis on grace as a gift can lead us to forget that we can ask also the question, what must I do? The rich man of Mark 10 asked that question, and so he merits our remembrance. A second feature of this man's life that we can discern from this passage is that he was a master of meeting expectations, following the rules. I tend to think he was a Presbyterian. (laughs) For when Jesus commended this man for his knowledge of the commandments, you know, the thou shalt nots and a thou shalt thrown in for good measure, the man could proudly boast, I have done all of these from my youth. This man checked off his life boxes with gusto. And I have to think that this is why he was so successful in this life, and perhaps also why the promise of eternal life eluded him. He reminds me a lot of the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. You know, the one who followed all of the familial and societal customs with the expectation that doing so would earn him the kind of lavish party and celebration that was being given on behalf of his slacker brother, the wasteful one who broke all of those familial and societal norms and customs. We know how that story turned out for the older brother. He missed out on the joy of the party. And so, too, here, this rich man discovers that there's more to feasting at the heavenly banquet than correctly setting the table. Just as the football team with fewer penalties doesn't necessarily win the game, just as those who follow a recipe to the tea do not always bake the tastiest cakes, there's more to eternal life than meeting expectations, adhering to the rules, conforming to social convention. Doing so may get you into the red zone, but not into the end zone. The rich man of Mark 10 encountered this wisdom in the life and in the love of Jesus. Disavowing any claim to goodness, any reason to condescend, Jesus stood at his level and looked at him. And we would do well to linger in that gaze, to dwell in that pregnant pause when Jesus gazes into the man's eyes, into his life, and I am sure the man felt both ecstasy and total discomfort. 
I imagine that the man in feeling that gaze and receiving that love wanted to stay where he was for the rest of his life and at the same time wanted to get away as fast as possible. In that gaze, Jesus was loving him with a self-giving love that we give the Greek name agape. And Jesus said, you lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. Mark's choice of verbs here says that the man's face fell. His mouth went agape at the implications of Jesus' agape, self-giving love. Jesus invited him to go, and you know what? That's what the man did. But he did so grievously because he had many possessions. To obtain what he wanted, he would have to give away everything that he had. And this leads me to the third characteristic of this man that I want us to remember, his sadness. We don't often celebrate sadness in our eulogies. But in this man's sadness, we see his capacity for eternal life. We see its possibility. And we also see ourselves. I know I see myself. This text is like a mirror to me. Because if Jesus meant what he said, and it seems he really did, that those with earthly wisdom have less than a camel's chance in passing through the eye of that needle, and that to follow Jesus means leaving my home, my wife, my children, my friends, my life. To occupy and dwell in an itinerant, simple lifestyle in order to be a part of this gospel? Well, then I'm walking away sad. I'm walking away grievously. And I bet you are too. But being sad is better than being indifferent. Being sad is better than being unmoved. Being sad is better than being immune to the call to eternal life or calloused beyond feeling. Being sad means that we yearn. When we feel that rich man's sadness, when the one thing being asked of us is the one thing we cannot conceive of doing? Or when the delta, the variance between how things are and how we are lies so far from how things are meant to be? We feel sadness. And that sadness tells us that we possess the possibility to be truly alive, that there is hope for us yet. So we may walk with that man in his sadness. We may share the shock and amazement of his disciples, Christ's disciples, who though they were closest to him and his wisdom also had to ask one another, if this is so, then who can be saved? This is how this man's journey leads us to hope. For it is through 
his life that we hear Jesus say, for mortals, for mortals, for mortals, it is impossible. But not for God. Not for God. For God, all things are possible. We recall the way the psalmist asked, what are human beings that you, God, are mindful of them? What are mortals that you care for them? Because indeed, the love for God, the love of God for mortals is itself an impossibility. Pity? Sure. Judgment? Of course. Mercy? Okay. But love? Agape love? Self-giving love that leads to the godlessness and the godliness of the cross? Impossible. It's the impossibility of that love that leaves open the possibility for that man to inherit the eternal life that he wanted. That that man, despite all he got wrong in trying to be so right, could still yet inherit it. Mark leaves it open as to how his story ends. Just as he did with the story of the resurrection, there's ambiguity at the end. There's con the conclusion is open-ended. The man walks away, but he is not forever lost. And that leaves us to our hope that the church, this church, the larger church, despite all of the bruises that we have endured and imposed, we may yet be the body of Christ. That our individual bodies, with all of their tempests and tumors, may still be temples of the living God. That this country Despite all we have done to contradict our ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we may still declare and live into the truth that all men and women are created equal. And that we as citizens of this global planet, all of us who seem only capable of living for today or in the hurts of yesterday, may yet bequeath a gift to those who will live and come after us tomorrow. This is why, this is why we remember and eulogize the man of Mark 10. Because in him we see the possibility of God's impossibility working in him, in us, so that we, like him, may run to Jesus, seeking what is worthy and true that we may aim for abundant life and discover that that life is more than meeting expectations, it's fulfilling God's will. And that our sadness in not doing so or not being able to is in fact an emblem of our hope. As we receive the love that makes all of our human impossibilities divinely possible, a love that holds Graham, Donnie, Randy, Mary Dell, Connie, Nancy, Paul, Sarah, and Bob, and the rich man of Mark 10, and us, and our church, our country, our world, in the inheritance of eternal life.
our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. About now, you're expecting me to say, Amen. And ordinarily, I would. But first, I would like to share a little bit more about the horsey sermon title and how it relates to this man and his life and the message of the gospel in the sermon. And the answer to that question, how, does, how much does it relate to this man and his life and the gospel? Not one bit. <laughs> or not much, anyway. So there's a story here. Last Sunday, 7 o'clock or so p.m., I was staring at the worship planning spreadsheet that guides us here in the staff level. And there's a cell, a blank space in that worship spreadsheet that says sermon title. And our process here is such that we often have to or usually must name our sermons before they are born. So staring at that blank screen, I was just having a real hard time. I couldn't think of a name for the sermon, so I just typed in the first thing that came to mind, which, whatever reason it was, it was a horse with no name. Hopefully more of you know that song than the Marvel (laughs) Comic Universe reference from earlier in the sermon. So I typed in a horse with no name. Then I engaged with a little bit of horseplay, because that is what I like to do. So I switched main, M-A-N-E, for name, N-A-M-E. Huh. A horse with no mane. That's got a nice ring to it. I have no idea what it means, but I like it. So then I thought, well, if that's going to be the sermon title, I need to figure out how this sermon might somehow relate to this, this name. And I thought, well... Maybe the rich man was like a horse with no mane. Because a horse with no mane runs like a horse, it neighs like a horse, but in all of its movement it, and its sound, it lacks the majesty of a horse. So maybe it's not really a horse. So likewise, I wondered... The rich man who seemed to say all the right things, who seemed to do all the right things, nonetheless lacked one thing. He lacked the majesty of God's eternal life, just like a horse with no mane. So I thought, I'm going to run with that. Let's go with it. But as the week went on and Because of uh, staff limitations this week, we just didn't get the new title on the board out front. So I drove by and I said, well, I still have a chance to change the title. And I thought maybe that would have been a good idea the more I thought about the sermon and the title. But then I started getting these texts and emails. Not a torrent and wave, but enough Actually, there was probably more anticipatory feedback on this sermon title than any other title I've given. (laughs) And I've given some doozies here. But each text, each email that came in made me 
glad. It filled me with energy because I felt this surge of connection and engagement and joyful anticipation all from a title that does not get it right. And isn't that just like the surge of kinship and hope that emerged from the rich man who didn't get it right either? There's majesty still to come for that horse with no mane. And now I say, Amen.